Well, every time, and I mean every time, I go on a trip in an airplane to a distant place, several thoughts always crossed my mind. Picture the scene with me. We, we pack our suitcases. And then I'm usually the one with the responsibility to take the suitcases from our bedrooms upstairs, down the stairs, and out to the car, and <coughs> into the car. And then we arrive at the airport, and I'm normally the one who bears most of the responsibility to take the suitcases out of the car, <coughs> And bring them to the baggage counter. And I'm normally the one with the responsibility to take our bags and uh, put them up on the the scale there at the ticket counter. And two thoughts always come into my mind. The first one is this. Maybe we can pack lighter next time. And my second thought, without fail, is this. How will the plane get off the ground? And uh, if Yvonne were here, she'd be nodding in total agreement. I think almost every time I verbalize that to Yvonne, I say, how is the plane going to get off the ground? I can soon hardly lift my luggage up on the scale. And we're going to jump on this plane with 100, maybe 200 other people who have baggage just like ours. And we're going to get in this plane. How is it going to lift off the ground? Well, sure enough. We sit in the plane, we sit in the seats, and we begin to accelerate down the runway. And through my mind, right, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, I look at out those wings, and I see those skinny little things. And I think that, that, that with all the strength of everything that this plane is going to lift with, are the, string, are the wings going to break? Are they going to make it? But never fail, the powerful jet engines thrust the airplane along. We're pressed back in our seats. The design of the wings lift the plane off the ground. Soon we're at 30,000 feet and we think nothing more of it until our return trip. When I take the luggage to the car and to the baggage counter and I think of the 200 people on the plane going to fly and I say, is it going to fly again? Now, as a physics major in college, I fully understand how an airplane gets off the ground. I know Bernoulli's principle, which gives the airplane wings its lift. I know the force of gravity. I understand how, how the force of the, the, the light and pressure in, you know, is more than the gravity. I understand that. I understand the strength of steel and the particular design of the wings. For me, it's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of experiencing. It's a matter of wonder and amazement in what actually is taking place as we're going down the runway and taking off into the air. I tell you that story because there are tremendous parallels to the Christian life and there are tremendous parallels to the resurrection of Christ. As believers in Christ, there's a power that we know and that we experience that ought to cause us to marvel and wonder and to be amazed and to experience fully. And I'm talking about the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. I've entitled my message this morning, you can see on your notes, The Power of the Resurrection. I invite you to open your Bibles to one verse, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I want to look at just one half of one verse this morning. It's going to use this verse as a, a launching pad for us to think about the resurrection. 
It's verse 10 that I want us to focus on. And before we get there, you need to realize Philippians 3 is a great passage of Scripture in which Paul describes how our salvation is not by our works, which we have done. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by being blameless according to the law, as much as Paul even was. Rather, it's by faith in the righteousness of Christ that makes us righteous before God. And having established that reality... He then comes to verse 10 and says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, there are several things we could unpack in this verse. We could look at Paul's great desire to know him. Like every Christian, Paul knew Christ, but it was his consuming desire to know him more. Like Paul's desire is similar to the desire of a husband who's madly in love with his wife, like I am with Yvonne, and desires to, to know her more and more and more. That's Paul with Christ. We can look at that. We can look at Paul's desire to fellowship in Christ with his sufferings. Every Christian's involved in a battle, and Paul's heart was to be so like Christ that he would share in his sufferings. And I say, the sufferings of the believer is no small issue in the Bible. It's no insignificant subject. But this morning, we're going to pass over this subject because of our focus on the resurrection. We're going to look at this one phrase, the power of his resurrection. And I say, however much we know about this power, we ought, like Paul, to have an ever-increasing desire a burning desire within us to know more about this power. That's what Paul said, that I may know him in the power of the resurrection. This is his heart to pursue and to go. We can almost feel him in this verse, longing and groping for a fuller understanding of the power that was displayed in the resurrection. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And so this morning, my outline really be simple. To unpack this. First, I want to look at the power of the resurrection in Christ. And then I want to look at the power of the resurrection in us. The power of the resurrection in Christ and the power of the resurrection in us. This first point comes from the word His. I want to know the power of His resurrection. You know, there is a great power that was made evident in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In fact, the scripture in several other places links the resurrection of Christ with power, with the power of God. I want to go to some of those. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. In this letter, Paul spends a great deal of time introducing the gospel that he's writing, introducing the letter of Romans. And he said in verse 4, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, it's through the powerful display of resurrecting the body of Jesus from the dead, God the Father demonstrated His power, and God the Father was declaring Jesus to be exactly who He said He was, the Son of God. It takes great power to raise a dead body. I did a bit of research this week into the physiology of a body, what happens when it dies. And when a body dies, several processes take place. And depending upon the cause of death, a whole sequence of events are triggered. 
I'm no expert at this, but I can read about it. And this, this is kind of what I've discerned. In the case of Jesus, he died of asphyxiation because he couldn't breathe. And as he hung on the cross, his breaths became more and more shallow. At first upon the cross, he could lift himself up and... <sighs> but as he went on, his breath got... <sighs> more and more shallow. What that meant is that less and less oxygen pumped through his body. And eventually some of his muscles and internal organs were oxygen starved. And they would react and some of them even would revolt and cramp and stop working. One crucial muscle is the heart. When the heart no longer received enough oxygen, it could no longer pump the, the blood through the body to get the oxygen to every other part of the body. And so whole body was oxygen starved. When that took place, the cells in his body would stop functioning. Not all at once, not everyone at once, but some of them. Just more and more. When the metabolic waste processes built up and poisoned essentially the cells, they would stop working. Some more quickly than others. And when Jesus said, it's finished and yield up his spirit, this started to take place. His body temperature started to cool down two and a half degrees Fahrenheit every hour. His muscles would have relaxed. His skin would have sagged and taken a new shape and form. When he's placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, his blood would settle. Some of, the, the, some of it would drain out of the capillaries and the high part of his body down to the lower parts of his body. As gravity would pull the blood down. As a result, the, the top of his skin would be pale. The bottom of his body would turn dark in appearance. As the cells in his body died, they'd lose their ability to, to fight off bacteria and would start with the stomach and bacteria would form in the intestine and it would cause it to rupture. And the putrefaction would spread across the stomach, down the thighs and over the chest. And the bacteria, the gas producer, bulge the eyes, protrude the tongue and push blood-stained fluid through the orifices. That's what happens to everybody when it dies. Within a few hours, rigor mortis would have set in, stiffening his eyelids and joints. After a few days in the tomb, the body of Jesus was a hunk of organic protoplasm. It takes great power to raise such a body from the dead. Psalm 16 says that God wouldn't allow the body to undergo decay. Certainly it died, like I'm talking about, but it didn't decay. God kept it there so it wouldn't decay. And then he brought it up and raised it up to newness of life. And that's the point here in Romans 1.4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now in some sense, I think it would have been easier to start from scratch. Sometimes buildings get so dilapidated and in such bad condition that the contractors say, let's just tear it down and start over. Because it's too much, and I believe that was the case with the corpse. And yet that's not the way that the Lord planned to do it with Jesus. He planned on raising the corpse of Jesus from a dead corpse to a living Son of God and thereby designating Him to be the Son of God through this marvelous display of power. Now you might well ask at this point, Steve, the, the Bible records many instances of people raising from the dead. I mean, you think about the widow's son that Elisha raised. Right? That boy was dead, and Elisha came, put her arms to his arms, feet to feet, mouth to mouth, and raised the boy. 
Or you think about the little girl that Jesus raised in Matthew chapter 9. Or, or Lazarus. He's dead for four days. Or you think about even Peter, who raised Tabitha from the dead. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. You say, how are these resurrections different than the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, why is the resurrection of Christ so associated with power? But these other resurrections aren't associated with power. I mean, everything I've said of a dying corpse is absolutely true of all these others that died. In fact, when we get to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to find the tombs were open. Perhaps even the decaying process went further in those bodies, dead for days, months perhaps. We'll see. Well, it's a good question. What makes Christ's resurrection different than these other resurrections? Well, for the answer to that, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to give you the short answer first, and then you'll see it in the text. The short answer is this, is that when Jesus was raised, it wasn't simply to life that he might die again. The son that Elisha raised died again. The little girl that Jesus raised died again. Lazarus died again. Tabitha <clears throat> died again. All those that came from the tomb died again. But when Jesus was raised, he was raised never to die again. And when Jesus was raised, it was a raising from the dead, not only to life, but to the highest position in the universe over all rule and all authority. Look at verse 18. Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's a great prayer. Paul desires three things. First, that you would know the hope of your calling. And I say, Rock Valley Bible Church family, oh, that you would know and see the great hope you have in Christ. The life upon this earth is difficult. There's a hope that's far greater beyond this life. If you see it and understand it, your life will change. You'll gladly endure the temporary afflictions that we have here on earth, knowing what awaits you. And second in verse 18, Oh, that you would know the abundant riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. Oh, Rock Valley Bible Church, that you would understand the scope of the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. That you would understand God's electing love. That you would grasp the redemption you have in Christ where your sins totally wiped away. And that you would grasp the Holy Spirit working in your life, sealing you for the day of redemption. Your life will change when you see what a privilege, what an honor, what a blessing it is to be a child of God. But our focus is this in verse 19. Oh, that you would see... What's the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Oh, that you would understand the magnitude of God's power. And Paul goes on in verse 19, 20, and 21, and part of 22, to explain and expound upon the power of God. He says, you want a display of God's power? Let me show you a display of God's power. It's in the resurrection of Christ. Read on. <clears throat> his power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead <clears throat> and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet. These verses are heaping in their descriptions of the marvelous power and the authority of Jesus. It's as if Paul is taking his shovel and, and digging it and saying, here's more, and here's more. He raised him. He, he seated him. He put him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Not only now, but in ages to come. He put all things in subjection. And just piling and piling and piling all the tremendous power that took place, the resurrection of Christ. Raised from the dead, as the Jews say, that would have been enough. But there was more. He was seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is a seat of highest honor and authority. There's no greater seat of authority than at the seat of the right hand of God. This is a seat of rule and power. That's the thrust of verse 21 when he says, over all rule and authority and power and dominion. The seat at the right hand is above every ruler. It's above George Bush in the American presidency. It's above Tony Blair in the English parliament. It's above Vladimir Putin in the Russian presidency. I don't care how big, how influential a country is or its ruler, its leader, the right hand of God is above them all. The right hand of God is far above them all. Dream of a world in which a ruler rules the whole world. All nations put under him. Six billion people under the feet of this ruler. And the rule of God at the right hand is far above that. Imagine the Lord tarries and science fiction becomes a reality. And we can hyperdrive through space as they did in the movie Star Wars, you know, conquering the whole universe. Lands beyond, planets, everything. And imagine there's one ruler over that. I'm telling you, the seat at the right hand of God is far above all rule and all authority, even what you can imagine ever thinking. Think about the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, angels, <coughs> demons. Think about all their, their amazing power. Think about all of them together. <coughs> Think about the one head demon over all of those. And I say, the right hand of God is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's how far above it is. It's not only in this age, it's also in the age to come. Paul wrote these things, think about this, so that you might understand the incredible power that took place in the resurrection of Christ. When you think of the resurrection of Christ, when you think about its power, you need to think beyond the body. He didn't merely rise from the dead to die again. He was raised from the dead to take the highest seat of honor in the entire universe. And when you think about the resurrection that way, you've got it. That's the resurrection. I mean, it's raising Jesus all the way up. Right? It's raising the bar all the way up as far as Jesus was raised. And when the apostles preached the resurrection, they often included this exaltation of Jesus in their preaching. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached of the risen Christ who had been exalted to the right hand of God. To the Sanhedrin, Peter spoke about how God raised up Jesus and exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior. When Paul preached in the city in Antioch, he mentioned the resurrection 
four times, including then a reference to Psalm 2, which speaks of the coronation of the king over all nations. In Acts chapter 17, Paul preached in Athens. He said, The resurrection of Christ from the dead has furnished proof to all men that Jesus has been exalted as the judge over all the earth. And to be judge over all the earth means that you have the rule and authority over all the earth. That's the power of the resurrection. Do you long to know this power? But Paul said, that I might know him. He wanted to know this power, but beyond that, in Ephesians 1, he wants others to know this power. Look at verse 17. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Not only did Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul want to know about the power of the resurrection. He wanted others to know about the power of the resurrection. It works a little bit like this. Have you ever read a book that like really impacted you and really helped you? Or have you ever seen a video that was really powerful, really worked in your life, or perhaps listened to a CD or a tape? Have you ever done that before? And what have you done oftentimes? You start talking about that book or that video, or that tape. And you start giving out that video, or that tape, or that book, hoping to share the experience that you had. And so also Paul, he says, for this experience I've had to see and understand the, the power of the resurrection of Christ, I long to know it, and I also am praying to the Lord that you also would long, would know it as well. But you need to be warned. As much as you want to know it, it is elusive. It is difficult. If anyone was in a position to understand the power of the resurrection, it was Paul. He's on the road to Damascus, and he has a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus appeared to Paul. Jesus spoke to Paul. Not in the sense that people say, God spoke to me today. Jesus spoke to Paul in utterance of specific things. He told him of a specific mission that Paul would have to the Gentiles. Paul saw Christ, risen, heard, conversed with Christ. And yet what Paul says, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. If Paul was grasping for it, I think we ought to grasp for it. And I say the power of the resurrection is difficult to grasp. We don't see dead people coming to life. We don't even see the realities of Christ seated at the right hand of God. We take it by faith. It's difficult to grasp. It's no wonder then why the disciples had difficulty believing the women when they told them the tomb was empty. Luke 24, 11 records the disciples when the, the women came back and said the tomb was empty, he's risen. They considered their words to be nonsense and refused to believe them. It's no wonder why the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were slow to heart to believe all the things the prophets had spoken. Because it's hard to believe in the resurrection. The, it, it's, it's elusive for us. It's no wonder, really, why many, why many who heard the message of the revelation from the mouth of the apostles didn't believe. And it's no wonder today why so many people refuse to believe the message of the resurrection from our mouths. Because it's, it's elusive. And I say this, there's a connection between understanding resurrection and understanding the power of God. If you don't understand the power of God, you won't understand the resurrection. 
A few months ago, we looked at the question that's put before Jesus concerning the resurrection. These Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection told Jesus this story, right? There were this woman who had seven husbands, all who died, and they said, Jesus, if the resurrection's really true as you say it is, then tell us, whose wife of the seven will she be in the resurrection? Ha! Answer that one, Jesus. And he replied, and he said, you're mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures, nor what? The power of God. It's the power of God that enables you to believe in the resurrection of Christ. To believe in the resurrection is to believe in the power of God. To fail in believing the power of God is to fail to believe in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 26, verse 8, Paul was speaking to a bunch of unbelieving Sadducees, challenging them, their understanding of the ability of the mighty power of God. He said, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead. See, if we understand God rightly and His power, we can understand and believe the resurrection of Christ. But if we have a little God, then our belief in the resurrection is going to fail because we don't understand the power of God. There's the power of the resurrection in Christ. At this point, I want to turn to my message. Really, And this is where really the heart and burden of my message is this morning. The power of the resurrection is far more than something that Jesus experienced 2,000 years ago. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than some historical event to allow the Lord to tell the world that Jesus was the Son of God who's going to come and judge. As we believe in Christ and embrace the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the same power that was in Christ is in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead by faith is ours as well. See, the power of the resurrection doesn't continue on today as if it were some great idea or teaching or discovery. The power of the resurrection of Christ continues today in a real power that each of us should long to know and experience. This is my second point. The power of the resurrection in us. I think this is what Paul is getting at in in Philippians 3. Longing to know it even personally in himself. We'll get to that. But even look here at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to see the power of the resurrection in us. We went through this the first time. I quickly passed over a phrase in verse 19, which links the resurrection of Christ to our life. Comes here in verse 19. I want you to see if you can catch it. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. See, it's through faith in Christ that we experience the power of the resurrection in our lives. There's a connection that Paul, when he goes on to describe this great power of Christ, that all is power toward us. It's not merely just demonstrated power for us to say, oh, that's good. You know, Jesus is, is worshipped and adored. That's true. But I, what I'm telling you is it's toward us. There's this participation that we have in this. And maybe you don't even realize how much power you possess by faith. You possess resurrection power. And I think that's the point of Paul. He prayed that you might know this, so you might understand this. And I want to show you a verse now that might blow your circuits. 
Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Those of you who have been attending flocks, we've been looking at the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God to elect from the foundation of the world, to predestine, to choose those who would believe in Christ. And we came time and time again to Ephesians 2, which speaks about the sovereign grace of God that takes dead people and makes them alive by His sovereign pleasure. Let's pick it up in verse 4. I want to focus on verse 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We focused in our flocks immensely on that. Salvation is a dead person being made alive by the sovereign power of God. By a sheer mercy, is what it says. We've not focused much on verse 6 until now. Not only does God make us alive, what else He does? Here it is, verse 6. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. See that? Three things He does. He makes alive, He raises us up, and seats us up in the heavenly places in Christ. Now when Paul speaks of us being raised up and seated with Christ, he uses the same language he did back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Where Christ was raised from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies. And I'm telling you, believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe and trust the sacrifice of Christ, you have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. What this means is this. Is that when God, by His sovereign grace, makes a new creation in Christ here upon the earth, it's not just an earthly reality. The working of salvation goes far beyond earth itself. When you're made alive in Christ, you are resurrected and exalted in Christ as well. And there is a sense right now, those of us who believed and trusted with Christ are at the right hand of God. I don't understand it, but that's what verse 6 is saying. It's difficult because we sure seem to be seated in the cafeteria. But there is this supernatural exaltation of our bodies where we are with Jesus. But you know what? Ephesians 2 isn't the only place that shares this. There's several other places which help to make this clear. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, we see a, a similar phrase being mentioned here. It says in verse 11, In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about a consecration in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Talking about what Christ has done to cleanse and pure, purify. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, there was a debate about this baptism, whether it's water baptism or spirit baptism. I, I don't want to get in that debate. I'm just saying that what this says is that we were raised up with Him. 
in the working of God. And we talk about raised up, it says in verse 12, he raised him from the dead. It is resurrection experience. There's a sense where we have experienced the power of the resurrection of Christ in our lives through faith in him. It's mentioned again in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, right? If you've been resurrected with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and the thought's the same. It's by faith in Christ you've been raised up with him. Therefore, Paul says, seek the things that are above. That's where you are. That's where you're seated. Seek those things. In verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, right? Because you've died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we begin to get a sense of how it is that we are raised up with Christ. Several times here in Colossians, we've seen that those who have believed are in Him, like verse 11 of chapter 2 says. Those who believed are with Him, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1. We are with Christ. As it says in verse 3, we are hidden in Christ. So as Christ was raised from the dead to see at the right hand of God, by our connection, being in Him, being with Him, being hidden in Him, we as well are raised to the right hand of God. See, here's the point I want you to understand. That Christianity is far more than just understanding the work of Christ from afar. It's far more than watching this plane go down the runway and take off. You know, when I drive into O'Hare with all our luggage in the back of our van, I see these planes coming in, and you know what? I don't think, oh, wow, that's, that's glorious. I, I wonder how that plane gets off the ground. It's when I'm in it that I'm awe and wonder, and I say that this aspect of being in Christ and hidden with Christ, we are on the airplane, we are in the airplane, we are with the airplane. And as the airplane takes off the ground, the amazing power of the jet engines, the design of the wings, we're carried along as well. And as Christ was raised from the dead, we're like hidden in Christ, so we're along for the ride. We're stowaways. Up to the highest exaltation, the highest elevator trip that anyone's ever taken. And I say this ought to focus our mind and attention upon the heavenly realities where we sit. And when you're flying in an airplane, you're not concerned with stoplights and with oncoming traffic and gas stations. You're concerned about the trip you're on and you're concerned about the destination where you're going. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Since you're seated up, Think of the things on high where you are. It has a great impact on our lives. Another passage. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Very similar to Colossians 2. And again, this passage, we'll see the connection between the death and resurrection of Christ with our lives, with the way that we ought to live as well. Paul begins the chapter in chapter 6 by arguing against those who want to abuse the grace of God. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The picture of us is used here again with baptism and the close connection there of us dying with Christ and raising with Christ. We've died to sin and we live in newness of life in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Paul says our life should be different. We should walk in newness of life because we've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. In fact, that's exactly what verse 11 says. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so when you think of your life, you need to think of Jesus. Because he died a death for sin, and we should consider ourselves to have died to sin. And he rose to life, and so we also should consider ourselves alive as well to God. And we ought to consider this close link that we have even with the life of Jesus. And so, when you live your life this week, you ought to think of Jesus and think of his power working in you. That you can conquer sin. There's no temptation that's overtaken you such as a common man. God will provide a way of escape. He'll do that through the power of the resurrected Christ working within you. You should think of yourselves as Jesus. Jesus is dead to sin. Jesus is alive to God. And so also we are. Because, listen, you're dead to sin and alive to God if you're in Christ. The admonitions continue. Same line of reasoning, 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why? Because you're dead to that. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And I simply say, our lives are to reflect the resurrection power that we have come to share through our participation in the powerful resurrection of Christ. As I thought about these things this week, I was reminded afresh how our faith is far more than facts. Our faith is far more than creeds. Our faith is far more than a body of doctrine. Our faith is far more than following a teacher. Our faith is far more than living morally. When we trust in Christ, we are joined to Christ. And we are joined to Him in a daily experience. And we ought to know and experience His resurrection power in our lives. And I believe that helps us bring us back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where we will land the plane. Turn back to Philippians 3, verse 10. This is where we began. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There are many powerful things that Paul could have identified and wanted to know more fully. Right? He could have said, that I may know him and the power of creation that could create the world by speaking it into existence in six literal days that would be able to sustain the world until now. He could have said, that I may know Him in the power of the worldwide flood that covered the whole earth and destroyed much flesh. We look at the tsunami, we say it's a powerful act of God. But to to think of the whole earth being covered with water, destroying so much flesh by the power of God. Paul could have said, that I may know him in the power of the ten plagues unleashed on Egypt. Each were unique and each were different and often were discriminating. Darkness on one place but light in another. 
Oh, that I might know Him in the power of the parting of the Red Sea. That I might know Him in the, the power of the making the sun stand still, Joshua 10, that maybe some of you read in your Bible reading this week as we did. Sun stood still for a day. This never happened before, never happened afterwards, but that's what God did. That is awesome power. How he kept things from flying off the earth, or how he adjusted, I don't know how he did that. Paul could have said that. Paul could have said that I may know him and the, the power of the consuming fire that consumed the sacrifice on Mount Carmel that came down, I was reading that in 1 Corinthians 18 this week, came down, consumed the, uh, the sacrifice, and licked up all the water. That's power. Before 500 prophets of Baal to see. Paul could have said that I may know him and the power of the miracles of Christ. I mean, the, the miracles that Jesus did were amazing power. Feeding 5,000, raising people from the dead, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind again and again. Oh, that I might know the, the power of the miracles. Or, oh, that I might know the power of the plagues described in Revelation that knocks off a third of the earth. But why did Paul say that I may know him in the power of the resurrection? I think it's because he knew that the power of the resurrection had real practical implications in his life. Because it's the power of the resurrection that's at work in us. I don't think Paul is just burning passion to know necessarily merely historical displays of God's power. He wants to know and experience the actual power of the resurrection of Jesus in his life. He wanted to know the power of the resurrection of Christ because that same power was at work in him and at work in us. And so this Resurrection Sunday asks you, where's your heart? When you think of the resurrection, do you think of it as something that Christ only experienced? Or do you view it as something that you experience as well? Are you one that might stand as I would and applaud the University of Illinois for a game well played yesterday, coming back from 15 points with four minutes to go, erasing an eight-point deficit with one minute and just kind of cheering them on and saying, oh, that was, that was fun? Or are you a roommate of one of the basketball players? who cheered like crazy because you know then that next night you're going to go and get to talk to him about everything that took place and share in the experience of this tremendous comeback. I think that that person, the roommate of one of those basketball players, would have cheered more loudly than perhaps we would. Why? Because there's an experience there. There's a part that he knows. And with the resurrection of Christ, there is a part that we experience of his resurrection. The aim of my message this morning has been to take the resurrection of Christ out of the realm of mere historical significance. As historically significant it was, I want to bring it into the realm of your present experience. I want you to realize how the resurrection of Christ is more than just something that happened. It's something that happens that affects us that we ought to experience. That you might say with Paul that I might know him. And I say, do you have this passionate longing to know the power of the resurrection in your life? Can you relate it all with Paul in verse 10? Do you have a great desire to know these things in a greater and a greater and a greater way? That's my heart for myself. 
That's my heart for you, that you would understand the power of the resurrection in Christ, and that you would understand the power of the resurrection in us. We might live differently and live lives wholly pleasing to the Lord. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray for Rock Valley Bible Church that we would grapple with these things. Come to embrace them. Come to understand them. Come to know them. Come to long for a greater spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Long to know Him more in greater and more deeper ways. Lord, that we would experience this resurrection power, that we would realize how it is that we are raised up in the heavenly places in Christ that we realize that we've died to sin. We are alive to God in Christ. I pray for victory over sin this week. As a demonstration, O oh Lord, of the power of Christ working in us. That this Easter might not be merely a, a historical remembrance like Thanksgiving, remembering what took place with the pilgrims, as wonderful that is, or, or thanking you for Christmas time and the birth of Christ, but may we realize that this time of Easter and the resurrection of Christ has tremendous present implications in our life. May you show us that, may you teach us that, may we embrace it, may we understand it, and so live for the glory of Christ. Amen.